The scripture this morning is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Again, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Hahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. An ox knows its owner and the donkey its master. But Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a board of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord, and they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds, bruises, and sores. They have not been closed, or bound up, or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate and overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a small remnant we would have become like Sodom. We would have made like Gomorrah. Thank you, Bruce. Well, good morning, church. Looking at that passage, and there are words of encouragement from this, as you're going to see here in a moment. You know, many years ago, probably know this, well, NASA wanted to test the strength of windshields of airliners and military jets in the space shuttle. And so the scientists at NASA built this um, gun, this chicken gun, specifically to launch dead chickens at the windshields of these aircrafts while traveling at maximum uh, velocity. The idea was to simulate collisions with airborne fowl to test the strength of the windshields. Now, the story is, is told that the British engineers heard about this gun, and they were eager to test it on their windshields of their new high-speed trains. And so, arrangements were made, and, and the gun was then sent off to the British engineers. Now, when the gun was fired, the British engineer stood shocked as the chicken hurtled out of the barrel of the gun, crashed into what they would believe they would believe would be a, a shatterproof shield, but instead smashed it to smithereens, 
blasted through the control console, snapped the engineer's backseat in two, and then embedded itself in the back of the uh, cabin like an arrow shot from a bow. The horrified British engineers then sent NASA the, direct, the disastrous results of the experiment along with the designs of the windshields and, and they begged the U.S. scientists for, for suggestions. And NASA responded with a one-line suggestion, thaw the chicken, thaw the chicken. Now, the British engineers, whether that's apocryphal or true, I don't know, but the British engineers, though, missed one very basic truth with unhappy results. And often that can be said of us. When something rather basic is overlooked in our lives, we can experience something painfully disastrous. Well, that introduces us to the passage we're looking this morning that Bruce read for us in the book of Isaiah. The people in Isaiah's day were declining spiritually. They were still doing religious things, but their hearts were cold. They were far from God. And Isaiah is going to bring them back to something rather basic. And so if you're not there, look with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We began a new sermon series last Sunday from the book of Isaiah on the theme of why are we here? Why are we here? And I began our time in an, in an unusual way, really, by looking at chapter 6 before looking at chapter 1. You'd think a new study would start with chapter 1. I started with chapter 6 because I tend to think that chapter 6 happened before chapters 1 through 5. Not everyone agrees with that, but that's how I think it should be seen chronologically. But I wanted us to see, though, what God was doing in the preacher before we considered the preacher's message. And as we saw last week, Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God, profoundly touched by the grace of God, and he was never the same again. He answered the call of God by saying, look no further, Lord, I'm your guy. And that's what, that's what transformation, real transformation looks like. Your arm uh, doesn't have to be twisted in order to serve. You don't have to be guilted into it. There's no coercion, no shaming you, no powerful emotional appeal, no pictures of starving children or, or charts of the unreached in the world or testimony from recovering drug addicts or, or statistics on the effects of absent dads. No, nothing when you're profoundly touched by the grace of God, nothing can stop you from stepping up from serving. And that was true of the man, the prophet, the preacher Isaiah, who um, was told after his acceptance, willingness to serve and God's call that his message of warning was not going to be warmly received. Now, I remind you that the people of God at this time were enjoying a relative peace and prosperity for about uh, 50 years. However, in that time of physical blessing, they had drifted from God. They forgot the one who had blessed them. And so God's about to act in judgment, but he first warns them as he does. 
And so it tells us in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, I hope you're looking at your, at your Bibles here, Isaiah 1, verse 1, says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now you can jot down 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 32 and hear about these kings. Well, this one verse here in chapter 1, verse 1, gives us a lot of background information. So, so kind of bear with me as I want to touch on the historical background briefly. Now, those of you who love history go, yes, bring it on. Others of you that don't go, oh man, when can we get the real good stuff here? Well, hang in there. This is essential to know this background to understand the message. Otherwise, I wouldn't give it to you. The nation of Israel, of course, consisted of of 12 tribes, right? And however, after Solomon died, and Jeroboam and Rehoboam respectively were sitting on the thrones, the kingdom uh, was divided in two. There were 10 northern tribes, and then there were two southern tribes. And so Isaiah now is writing to the two southern tribes, the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. And at the point that he's writing this, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, has already fallen to the Assyrians. In fact, uh, in 722 BC, the Assyrian emperor, uh, uh, Sennacherib, came in and just wiped out the northern kingdom. And it was threatening now, it was breathing now, Assyrian, were breathing down the necks of Judah. But the Assyrians weren't able to conquer Judah. And, 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 and the problem was Judah kind of felt rather smug about that. They thought, see, we didn't go into captivity. And Isaiah comes along and says, you didn't go into captivity yet. And so the Babylonians, he's saying to them, are on the other side of the Assyrians, Judah. They're going to come down. They're going to wipe you guys out unless you turn back to the Lord's. So it's just prior to this major event, and perhaps even during it to some degree, that God raises up Isaiah to speak his word into their situation. Now, Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And we might say salvation is of the Lord. And the meaning of his name is really no small thing. Because the thread that runs through the book of Isaiah is that even though God will pour out his judgment on his people for their sin, he is not through with them. Salvation is of the Lord. And ultimately, of course, that salvation is through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see beautifully in Isaiah chapter 53. But, But I'm getting ahead of myself. But some have called Isaiah the fifth gospel. For it has tremendous connection with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, that's all the free stuff. Isaiah chapter 1, let's look at this now. We have the first principle for this morning. And that is the fundamental problem is not knowing God. The fundamental problem, our fundamental problem is not knowing God. All right, Isaiah 1 verse 2. It says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled. And literally, it's broken the covenant, broken the Mosaic covenant against me, God says. 
Now, the language here, and then I wish I could flesh this out a little bit more, but, but catch this. The, the picture here is of a courtroom with God stating his charge against his people. He's both prosecutor and judge. But as prosecutor, he, God calls his witnesses, and his first witnesses are the heavens and the earth, and he calls them to listen. Now, of course, the heavens and earth can't really listen. They don't have ears. But his point here is that creation does exactly what the creator asks it to do. That's his witness. The sun gives out warmth when God instructs it to give out warmth. The clouds, when told to give out rain, do exactly what God orders. It gives out rain. The creation obeys its creator. The creation obeys its creator, but the people of God do not. And it breaks from common sense, which we know isn't very common, right? But the people here owe their existence to God, their creator. Their very livelihood as a nation is because God, in essence, birthed them, nurtured them. It says he had brought them up, which literally means enlarged their number to even be a, be a nation. God did that. So it's incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible then that God, they would then push away the one who has given them all they need. Now God calls his next witness, verse 3. He says, the ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger or crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Now you've got to understand here, there's a little, little humor here. God, God has a sense of humor. Right? He does. I mean, sometimes we need to kind of lighten up a little bit and have some humor in our life. Laugh at yourselves. You'll never lack any material. Right? God has a sense of humor. We see it here. He mentions, he mentions the animal world, and he chooses two of the less than brightest creatures, the ox and the donkey. I've never heard anyone say, he's as smart as an ox. <laughs> right? Or he's as bright as a donkey. Or the other word they want to use there, right? Even the, see what he's saying here? Even the dumbest of animals know to whom they belong. Even the, even the dumbest of animals recognize they're being protected and provided for by their master. And the people of God, he's saying here, with a little twist of humor, the, the people of God make these animals look like geniuses. They at least know their owner. They at least know their master. They follow him to the barn for food and water. Kind of like my dog. He's not the brightest. But you know what? I open up the cabinet where his food is stored. I don't care where he is in the house. He is right there. Seconds. He knows where he's getting it from. He gets it. The owner. Take care of him. Yet those who should know better, he's saying, they wander from false, one false owner or master to another. So what's the fundamental problem? He says at the end of verse 3, don't miss this. But Israel does not know. Israel does not know me. Israel does not understand God's name. They, they, don't, they don't know their owner. Now the people of God, they had witnessed the power of God. 
We sang, sang it earlier, right? We, we live in the goodness of God. We've seen the goodness of God. The people saw the goodness of God. They experienced God as their deliverer. They knew much about God, yet by their actions, it's as if they don't know God at all. Folks, it begs the question, can you say this morning, I know God. I know God. And, 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 do, your, and do your actions support that? John, in his epistle in 1 John, he says, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, now get this, whoever does not love does not know God. You don't love and you say, I know God. I'm not going to love people around me. There's a disconnect. Can you say this morning, I know God? I didn't ask you, do you know about God? Do you know Him? There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Some have said it's, it's about 18 inches, the distance from your head to your heart. Now, that's not to say, and I'm not saying this, that, that we can know God without knowledge about God. I'm not saying that. It's not, it's not merely experiential. We must be careful not to draw too much of a distinction there. But we all must admit that we can fatten ourselves on knowledge yet to be undernourished in experience, right? Do you know God? Is that what your life is all about? Do you enjoy God? Do you walk in fellowship with the one who made you? Why are we here to know God? Why were we created to know God? What, what makes life worthwhile? Know God. What, what is it that can hold our attention? Knowing God. Do you know him? And it's 2023, a year when you want to know him better. And then what are you doing about that? You can't say, I want to know him better and not do anything about that. How do you know God? Right here, church. Right here. This is it. Everything in the book, cover to cover, is about knowing God. He wants to speak to you from his word. You were created to listen, to obey the voice of God. Are you listening? Can you hear his voice? Among all the other voices out there, can you distinguish his? There was a man who went to an estate sale, and he, he noticed that one of the items for sale was this large parrot, and, and he had always wanted a talking bird, so when it comes to up for a bid, he offers $50. $50. Then countered that from somewhere else in the room was a bid for $100. The man went to $150, and sure enough, somewhere else in the room, it went to $200. And each time, this man's bid was, was met with a bid for $50 more until the parrot is finally sold to him for $1,500. But he wanted a parrot, he wanted this talking bird, so, so he took it for $1,500. And, and he goes and gets the parrot, and the man asks the auctioneer, can this bird talk? The auctioneer replied, well, who do you think was bidding against you? <laughs> Can we hear his voice? Can we hear his voice? With all the other voices, church, that are competing for our attention, and our self-talk is really screaming at us. Do we hear the voice of truth? And the more we know him, the better we are to distinguish his voice from all the other voices out there. My sheep know me, Jesus says, and they hear my voice. 
People who know their God hear His voice. They obey Him. See, our fundamental problem, church, is not that we need some program to sweep us off of our feet and jumpstart our Christianity and off we go. We're going to be all set if we just have that one thing. That's not what we need. That's not our fundamental problem. A fundamental problem isn't let's go somewhere else and try and find the best worship out there and that's it. I need a worship experience. I mean, you're only going to find the best here anyway, but you know what I'm saying. We search and search for it. Or maybe it's another Bible study that I need, as good as that is. That is not our fundamental problem. The fundamental problem in Isaiah's day is that they did not know God. They had all the stuff, and they were doing all the stuff, as we're going to look at next week, but they did not know God. Living hope. Do you know God? Are you growing to know God better? Well, here's a test. Second principle. The more we know God, the more we are disgusted with sin. The more we know God, the more we're disgusted with sin. God states his charge. One through three there. Two and three really presents his case. Verse four reveals their true condition. Ah, he says, verse, uh, verse four. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Now, our tendency right here is to apply what Isaiah is saying to our country. Don't do that. Isaiah's primary concern is the people of God. We should apply these words not to America or to any other nation, but first and foremost, we need to apply it to the church. We need to apply it to our own lives. We need to look to see how we have drifted from the one who has made us, who we exist for, how we've drifted from knowing him. Because if we're to know God, I mean really know God, then we will do more than just have a cleaner version than the world around us. Because the more you know God, the more you love what he loves and hate what he hates. That's what holiness is right there. We love what he loves, we hate what he hates. And, and, and ourselves, first. Become more and more disgusted with it. Now I know I've shared this with you before, but I couldn't help myself to share it with you again. There's a report back many years ago in a, in, a, in a middle school that had faced this very unique problem. A number of the girls would go into the bathroom, put on lipstick, and then they would press their lips to the bathroom mirrors, leaving dozens and dozens of lip prints. It was making a mess of the mirrors. And they tried everything, and then finally the principal decided that something had to be done. So she called the girls to the bathroom and met them there with a custodian. And the principal explained that lip prints caused a major problem for the custodian who had to clean the mirrors every single day. So to point out and to make a point how difficult it was to clean, the principal asked the custodian to demonstrate how he cleans the mirrors. So the custodian took out a long-handled brush. He dipped it into the toilet, and then he scrubbed the mirror. <laughs> Guess what? There were no more lip prints on the mirror. If only we could see past the attraction of sin to the filth we'd been kissing, might we think again about giving in to it. The more we know God, the more disgusted as we would be with that when we see it in our own lives. I want that to be truer of me in 2023 than ever before. Now, in verses 5 and 6, 
We're given an autopsy report here. Why should you be beaten anymore? You can follow along. Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. The sole you feed the top of your head. There is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Now, what Isaiah is doing here is he's using a physical meta- metaphor here of physical health to get his point across of the symptoms that are indicators that something else is going on. If your head is bleeding, you can argue all you want that everything is okay. The wound would indicate otherwise. If I walked up to preach this morning using crutches and I said nothing happened, all is fine, you would have every right to question that. So it is spiritually. Symptoms are indicators of something much deeper. They always are. So I ask myself, I ask you, what is it that's been showing up in your life lately? You can say all is fine, but do the signs agree? I don't know what it is. Maybe you're just flipping out in anger over the least little thing, or maybe you're walking around in grumpiness, or maybe you won't let someone off the hook. You just can't forgive them, or maybe you're hating on the church. You can say all you want that you're doing fine spiritually. Symptoms indicate otherwise. Now, just as Isaiah saw the Lord, as we looked at last week, it shook him to the core of his being. He came undone over what he saw inside of himself. We need that healthy self-awareness of what we are doing and why we are doing it. We need to see this stuff that's messing with our lives and why there's reoccurring issues going on. That's why when I come to a passage like this, I can't just skip over this. I mean, I'm not going to touch on every single verse and chapter in Isaiah, but this is one I would have probably liked to skip and go, well, why don't I even preach on Isaiah anyway? This is tough stuff. I'm not allowed as a pastor to skip over this stuff. It isn't my job to do that. I can't skip over the issue of sin just to make you feel better than when you came in. At this time, the people of God were a mess. Why were they a mess? Well, you know that some of our problems are the result of wrong solutions to other problems. They are. I believe as Teddy Roosevelt has said, if you could kick the person in the pants most responsible for your trouble, you wouldn't be able to sit down for a month. Right? It's not everybody else. All right, leads to our third principle. When you go against natural laws, you haven't broken those laws, only demonstrated them. When you go against natural laws, you haven't broken those laws, only demonstrated them. God gives them a little uh, dose of reality here. This is what their future is going to look like. Look at verse 7. He says, your country is desolate. It's kind of prophetic what's going to happen. Your city's burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Now, why will they become this wasteland? Why were bad things happening to them or going to happen to them? Why were their lives falling apart? Will they, will we, see the connection between our decisions and the consequences? There's a family who owned, true story I'm told, the family who owned this hamster that they affectionately called Hammy. Hammy lives in this little cage, and in this cage, he has a wheel that he can run inside of. But Hammy refused to run inside his running wheel. Instead, he's come up with what he thinks is a better idea. 
Hammy climbs up on top of the wheel, not inside. He turns over on his back on the top of the wheel, and he stretches out. And gradually, the wheel starts to run and turn, and Hammy's entire body rolls with it, head first, and the wheel just picks up speed, spins faster and faster and faster until clunk, Hammy's head smacks on the bottom of the cage. What does Hammy do next? He climbs back up on top of the wheel. (laughs) He turns and stretches himself out, and he does the same thing again. And the wheel picks up speed and goes faster and faster until clunk, Hammy's head smacks once again in the bottom of the cage. Now, why would a hamster disregard the wheel's proper use and do something that only hurts himself? And why, even after that, would he do it again? Here's the bigger question. Why would we, who are supposedly smarter than hamsters, sometimes do the same thing? Why would we continue to climb outside of God's wheel of desires and purposes and goals and, and, and rules, however you want to look at that, or, or at least, you know, uh, what He wants for us, what is best for us, and spin on top of the wheel trying to find satisfaction? He says, no, 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 it's inside the wheel, and we keep crashing. Why? I mean, and, and you gotta go, why do I keep having these fallout in these relationships? Why does these, these things keep happening to me in my life when I keep doing this? Because I haven't really changed the thing that I'm doing and I keep having the same results. You know what that means, definition of sin. We keep crashing up. Listen, we keep crashing up against the spiritual laws that God has laid out for us. And it's like trying to jump off a building in hopes of defying gravity. To drive your car as fast as you can into a brick wall, you will experience the natural results of that. And when you go against natural laws, you haven't broken those laws, you've only demonstrated them. Same is true in the spiritual realm. If we live contrary to God's ways and what He's laid out for us, we will experience the destructive results of those actions. You see, sometimes we kind of see God's wrath as just, just... red-faced, out-of-control madman who's out just to destroy your life and punish you every time you turn. No, no, no. He sets up for us how life works. And we go against that. We're going to feel the results. What degree are you feeling the results right now? Simply because you left God out. You're trying to do it your own way. You're going on top of the wheel instead of inside the wheel. It's self-inflicted. Verse 8 says, daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in the field of melons, like a city under siege. I can't get into all of this, but just, I want you to just understand this picture, because it really leads to my final point here. When he speaks of shelter or, or huts or booth, whatever it is, it's likely referring to harvest shelters, little, little lean-tos that were set up by the farmers in the fields during harvest time. That's the way they have to go back and forth from home to farm, home to their land, home. They could stay right in these lean-tos during harvest time. And after harvest time was over, these little shacks, these little lean-tos would kind of become these eyesore, kind of what we see sometimes around town when someone isn't taken over. The, I mean, please, someone do something friendly down there, please, right? We see this, and it's an eyesore for us, right? That's what happens to these lean-tos when they're not being cared for. He's comparing Israel to these shacks, useless shacks, neglected shacks. The beautiful bride, he's saying, is nothing but a shack. 
Well, I guess we can say at least it's a shack. There's some hope on the horizon. Now, here's my final point. And, and, and if, you, if you've checked out, get this right here. This is, this is significant. Not the rest isn't. But grab this. Nothing you do or have done is any match for the grace of God. Please hear that. Nothing you do or have done is any match for the grace of God. Verse 9, we can easily miss it. Unless the Lord Almighty had left some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. Now, it's never a good thing to be mentioned in the same sentence as Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the epitome of wickedness, known to all as the most sinful cities of human history, and God destroyed those cities, right, with burning sulfur because of their evil. Why are the people in Isaiah's day being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah? To highlight the grace and mercy of God. The warning of impending judgment is combined with words of hope that there's still a future for the people of God. How would things be different for God's people here than Sodom and Gomorrah? Why would there be any survivors? One word, grace. Why wouldn't everyone just be wiped out someday because of their sin that he's referring to them or to us? One word, grace. And although Zion is a little more than a shack in a vineyard, there's hope for her for she's at least still a shack. Don't miss the grace piece that's written here. They deserved total destruction, but because of God's grace, he'd preserve a, a remnant. He would preserve a small group of Israelites who are going to survive all of that. And that's, that's all the way through Isaiah. We're going to see it along the way. But I want us to see this morning from this is that this verse gives us hope. Nothing you do or have done is any match for the grace of God. You might be here this morning and go, man, you don't, you don't understand, Pastor, how much I've blown it this past week. You don't understand how much I've drifted from God. You don't understand. I've created a mess in my life right now. God wants to extend grace to you. He wants to deliver you from that affliction. He offers grace to you, and he says you don't have to continue in that sin. You can end your relationship to a particular sin at any time. That's grace. He has much more for you and for me than for our life to end as a wasteland. He has made himself known to you so that you can know him. He wants you, he wants me to know him. And you know, we're known by him. That, has a, that carries a lot of weight. That means he knows what it is you need. He knows how to care for you. He never, never has taken his eyes off of you even for a moment. You're engraved in the palms of his hands. All you have is because of him. We owe all our existence to him. Do you know him? I'm not talking about a checklist that you go through in the morning. Do you see your time with him as an interaction with a real person? Why are you here to know him? To walk with your creator to depend on him for everything, to be with him, and that be enough. Is that you? There's an elderly woman who was known to know God, was gradually losing her memory, and details began to blur, but throughout her life, she practiced the discipline of memorizing and meditating on Scripture. She knew her God 
She could recite many verses from memory from her worn uh, King James Bible, but her favorite verse had always been 2 Timothy 1.12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Well, the day came when she was confined to a nursing home. Each time a family member visited her, she would quote verses from Scripture. But over time, it was only 2 Timothy 1.12 that she could recite again and again. But even parts of that well-loved verse began to slip away from her memory. And she could only say parts of it. And she'd go, I know whom I have believed. He is able to keep what I've committed unto him. And her voice grew weaker and weaker. And the verse became even shorter right down to what I've committed unto him. That was all she could get out. She was taking her final breath. Her voice became so faint that family members had to lean close, listen to the few whispered words on her lips. At the very end, there was only one word of her life verse left. Him. She whispered it again and again as she stood on the threshold of heaven. Him. 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 It was all that was left. It was all that was needed. Him. Knowing Him. When all is said and done, church, when all is said and done, what is left is Him. Knowing Him. Let's be people who know their God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your words this morning from these pages that you have spoken to us and want to draw us into a deeper, richer walk and experience and journey with you. Help us in how to apply this to our lives that we're on this pursuit of knowing you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.